0: Well, it was a sweet time of preparation, and now we get to turn in our Bibles to the book of Daniel and begin this marvelous study tonight. I have been anticipating this study for a while. It started as my family was reading through uh, the Old Testament prophets, and we came to uh, Daniel, and I read through it. And I said, that would be great for us to study at church. And so we decided to jump in and to study the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel demonstrates the sovereignty of God over the nations. God's sovereignty over the Gentile nations is demonstrated in chapters 2 through 7, and God's sovereignty over the Jewish nation is demonstrated from chapter 8 through 12. God is a sovereign God, directing all things after the counsel of His will. He will accomplish His good purposes, and He will use even Gentile nations, to accomplish His good purposes. So as we look through this book, we are going to see the sovereign hand of God directing, even protecting the nation of Israel while they were under captivity and judgment. We're going to see the work of God as He plans the completion of judging Israel, ultimately restoring them and entering in and bringing in His kingdom. Before we get to see the prophecies and unfold those, we must begin with understanding the historical context and the background. And so that's where we'll find ourselves tonight. Tonight I will be less of a preacher and more of a teacher as we come to the background to understand this marvelous book that we have before us. Daniel was captive, taken captive, in about 605 B.C., The book itself was probably written about 530 B.C. That would be the absolute latest. It could have been written as early as 539. Anywhere between the window of 539 and 530, likely towards the latter part because that was the time that Darius had taken over. Daniel, by the time he is writing this book, is over 80 years old, probably in his mid to late 80s, somewhere at least 84 years old as he's writing this. He's writing this book, reflecting back on all that he's experienced, reflecting back on his time being taken away as an exile, his time of being trained and raised up, his time of spending uh, with different Gentile kings. Daniel, when he writes this book, he writes it in the analysis we see when we look through the book of Daniel, we see that Daniel writes as a historian. He is a he writes a history of kings, various Gentile kings. He writes a history of the captives, the Jewish captives. He writes a history of faithful believers, how those who were able to be preserved through the exile. He writes the history of nations. At the same time, as he is writing as a historian, he's also writing as a man of God, always aware of God, always aware of, God, always aware of God's work, always appealing to God. He was the one used to reveal dreams. He was the one who was used to receive prophecies and deliver prophecies. Angels spoke to him while he was in captive. He was the one used by God to communicate God's judgments, both on Gentiles and also on the Jews. He is, for us, a man who writes as a faithful man of God. The style of Daniel demonstrated here demonstrates a man of keen intellect, a man skilled, who is purposeful in his writing. This book, as we come to it, comes again at the end of one's life, a reflection of 70 plus years, 70 years of captivity, years of remarkable demonstration of the faithfulness of God years in which he had experienced, again, personal suffering and difficulties, oppositions, and yet the whole time God demonstrated himself faithful, preserving Daniel through all of it. That's the background, and let's just kind of work our way through a few details to help us set up this marvelous book. First of all, how do we classify the book of Daniel? The classification of it. In our Bible that we have before us, Daniel is classified as a major prophet. He is part of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. But the Hebrew Bible is constructed differently. In our canon, our canon is divided into five parts. We have the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We have the historical writings, as Joshua through Esther. You have the wisdom literature, Job through the Song of Solomon. Then you have the major prophets, Isaiah through Daniel, and then the minor prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's divided into three parts. You have first the law, the Torah. This is the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses. You then have the prophets, which would include all the prophets, that which we would include as major and minor prophets, minus Daniel. And then in the Hebrew Bible, you have the Holy Writings, known as the Hagiographa. The Holy Writings are those which would include the wisdom literature, which would include uh, the, the um, books of Proverbs, the, the historical literature, and of course, Daniel as well. Daniel is viewed by the Hebrew canon as being wisdom literature. The reason is because when you come to the first seven chapters, or at least six chapters, seven chapters of Daniel, actually the first six chapters, sorry, seventh chapter is more filled, is the transition point, starts to fill up with prophecy. But the first six chapters are filled with narrative and discussions, and Daniel's unfolding the historical events from chapter seven through twelve. There is then the workings of the prophecies. How do we classify then Daniel's work here? I think this is where we look to our Lord. When our Lord referred to Daniel in, in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15 as the prophet Daniel, or the things written through Daniel the prophet, we view Daniel's writings as prophecy. Of course, along the way you have the narrative up front, but this is a prophecy. That's why we, it's significant for us today. The prophetic elements that are unfolded in this book, particularly from chapter 7 through 12, and when we drill down, 9 through 12, the events that occur there are, are significant even for us today as we anticipate the final events coming out. And we will see that when we get to those latter chapters. So we classify Daniel as a work of prophecy. Who is this man, Daniel? They have clearly, as we're going to see, working our way through Daniel, that Daniel is a prophet, as our Lord referred to him. He's also a politician and an exile and a model believer. Daniel is the one who rose up among the exiles who became a prominent figure. The kind of figure that all of Israel looked to in the midst of their personal suffering and exile, as we will see in a moment. God raised up this unique man with unique ability. This man who was specifically called out for this very purpose, to be able to lead Israel through this time, to intercede for Israel. Daniel at this point is living through the entire exile. He outlived Jeremiah, who lived during this time. He outlived Ezekiel, who lived during this time. He lived through the entire exile, ministering to the people of God. He never returned back to home once he left uh, and was taken from Judah to Babylon. He never returned back. He was too old when the decree to return and rebuild Israel was given. But nonetheless, he ministered during that time. He acted at times as a mediator. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's praying for Israel. He acted as a high priest during that time in intercession. He acted as one who gave voice to the nation of Israel while they were under captivity. He acted as a counselor and an advisor to kings. He also acted as one who ministered to, again, those who were in political places, and those who were in exile. He was the bridge. There have been doubts of whether or not Daniel himself was a historical figure. By the time you go through the book, many struggle with the remarkable accuracy of Daniel's prophecies. When you see both the rise of Darius or the rise of, of Antiochus IV, when there's the rise of these individuals and the specific fulfillment of those prophecies, there are doubts that Daniel was written way back in 605 BC. Some have suggested that Daniel was probably written in 165 BC during this time that this that because, again, scholars are doubting that Daniel could fulfill these prophecies with such accuracy. The idea is that uh, there had to be a redactor. There had to be some kind of editor who came along and fulfilled the details and wrote in. Yeah, there were some events that might have been historical, but someone else had to have come along and filled in the rest. But I think there's more evidence, again, pointing to the historicity of Daniel. I'll just point you to a couple of verses you can take down. Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 14. In the book of Ezekiel Ezekiel refers to Daniel or the Lord refers to Daniel and says even though even though these three men Noah Daniel and Job were in its midst by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves the Lord God refers to Daniel as one of these holy men ezekiel 14 and verse 20 even though noah daniel and job were in its midst as i live, declares the lord they could not deliver either their son or their daughter judgment is going to come it is unavoidable even daniel himself along with noah and job they couldn't stop it ezekiel 28 and verse 13 behold are you wiser than daniel there is no secret that at is as match for a match for you, Ezekiel, a prophet writing during this time, writes and refers in god 's quotations God has referred to Daniel on three occasions. Jeremiah also writes during the time of Daniel here in Daniel chapter nine and verse two. It is while Daniel is praying, Daniel is praying, anticipating, and it says there that he is reading, he says, He observed in the books of the numbers of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord, notice, to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Daniel is a contemporary of Jeremiah and he has read Jeremiah and is anticipating particular events. Again, it's Daniel... Is a historical figure who writes as a contemporary with Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and he writes again to us and to Israel. Now, notice the next thing we need to observe is the style of writing in this particular book. Again, those who reject Daniel as the writer will point to the style of writing as evidence that Daniel is not the writer. And they will say there are too many times that the prophet refers to himself in the first person, I, I, Daniel, or to me, like over in 8 and verse 1, you see that. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. Here's the reference. Verse 2, I looked up. Again, I myself at the end of verse 2. and Then I lifted my eyes. Here's a first person reference. But there are other times that Daniel in this book refers to himself in the third person. Turn back to Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 and you see that. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. So what is it? Is this a reference to Daniel? Is he writing of himself? Or is this uh, someone else who came along and added in some details? A third, perfor- third person reference? A, a narrator, if you will, who came along and filled in what Daniel had written? This is a fact there's a clear transition in chapter 7. If you look over at chapter 7 of Daniel... 7 verses 1 and 2, you have first of all the third person reference, and then it moves to the first person in chapter 7, 1 and 2. In the first year of King Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, and it's all third person, then here. I was looking up in my vision, and from there on out continues into the first person. So the idea is that somehow an editor came along and just updated the book. But what I want to point out to you is that this is common in prophecy. It's common within prophecy for the prophet when speaking in narrative or in narrative narrating an event to speak in the third person. And then when coming to the particular prophecy, to speak in the first person. Just one example, and there are many examples. If you read through the prophets, just grab your Bible, start reading through the prophets. Read through, in fact, Amos. We just saw it this week as our family was reading through the minor prophets and reading through Amos. And just look, the reference going back and forth between the first person and third person. But also you can see it in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah one eleven, you have the first person when it says this, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. And then you come to chapters 27 through 28, and it's Jeremiah is referenced in the third person. And in the third person, it is Jeremiah was spoken to as the Prophet. In fact, Jeremiah 28.5 says this, Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and in the presence of all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. What is going on here? This was normal writing style for those who are writing in prophecy. So this doesn't indicate that there was some narrator who came later in 165 and added anything only indicates the particular kind of writing here of prophetic literature this is normal then for this kind of writing another detail of style that i want to point out to you here is that the book of daniel chapter one is written in hebrew from chapter two through seven it is written in aramaic and then chapters eight through twelve it goes back to the hebrew language so that we're going to have all kinds of fun when we get to chapters 2-7, through seven, all that to say. But in that, there is a demonstration of the particular writing style that writing in Aramaic, that was the language of the day. That is, again, the common language for commerce Aramaic. So it would be no surprise that Daniel, when in his days of captivity, would be writing particularly in the known prominent gentile language of the day and when he was focused on a message to the gentiles he spoke to the gentiles in their familiar tongue of the day and then when he turns his attention back to the jews and he references the jews and what god is going to do among the jews that he turns back and he starts writing in hebrew so as to give them again particular reminders There's also, in the particular style, a chiastic structure from chapters two through seven. Chiastic structure is a particular kind of structure in poetry where uh, you would have paralleling ideas. So in chapter two, parallels with chapter seven. So what you have in chapter two, you have fourfold period of Gentile. Gentile powers ruling you have the the four gentile kingdoms of Babylon Medo Medo Persia Greece and Rome and then in chapter 7 you have described there the in chapter 7 chapter uh, verses 2 through 3 it says the four winds of heaven were stirred up the uh, stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another You had a description between the four kingdoms and these four great beasts. That's chapter 2 and chapter 7. Well, chapter 3 and chapter 6 also parallel. You have in those, the theme in those chapters is the deliverance of those who are faithful to God. In chapter 3, you have the deliverance of Daniel's friends from the fiery furnace. In chapter 6, you have the deliverance of Daniel from the lion's den all pointing to chapters 4 and 5 as the high point. And chapters 4 and 5 as the high point is you have the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar and you also have the humbling of King Belshazzar. God's sovereign humbling of these Gentile kings. That is the focal point of of chapters 2 through 7, the high point. All of this is fitting together within Daniel's grand theme is to demonstrate that God is sovereign over all affairs. All that is taking place, all the plans that are unfolding, even among the Gentile nations who reject God and oppose Him, God is directing all of those things and accomplishing His purposes. God is sovereign in the midst of judgment. He is sovereign over these Gentile nations. He is ruling in every way. And in those chapters, chapters 2 through 7, Daniel purposely orchestrates the details, even moving out of chronology so as to demonstrate the purpose here, that God is in control. Remember, this is Daniel in his 80s. This is Daniel who has been captive for most of his life. This is Daniel who has watched the rise of kings and the fall of kings. This is the Daniel who's watched the rise of nations and the fall of nations, who had dreams and visions and interacted with world powers, and above it all, his confidence was in the one true God. The God that he kept drawing attention to. The God who spoke to him and through him. The God who ministered to his own people during this time. And here was Daniel capturing all of these events and recording these events down so as to minister not only to the nation of Israel, but to us even today. God is a sovereign God who raises up these nations, uses them according to His purposes, judges them, and moves on. And He is, as we're going to see, He is going to preserve his people and protect them. He is going to complete their their judgment and he is going to restore the kingdom. That is the hope that the people are left with by the time they finish the book of Daniel. Now we come, another observation, the historical background. And this is where we actually finally get into our book. Turn over to chapter 1 and verse 2. And we can begin to unpack the historical background to this book. Notice how Daniel begins in verse 1 there. This is in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now just to set the events, there is the historical setting in relationship to the major prophets. Yet Isaiah, first of all, the major prophet who had written, Isaiah had ministered nearly more over a hundred years before this time. Isaiah, he mainly ministered in Judah and he ministered again a hundred years, over a hundred years before the Babylonian captivity. Isaiah was ministering to Judah in a time of Judah's prosperity at a time in which Isaiah came and warned Judah that if they continued, that they were going to head into apostasy. And Isaiah continued to warn Judah that that apostasy, apostasy was rising up and they were going to abandon their God and God was going to bring judgment upon them. In fact, by the time you come to Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah anticipates there that it's going to be Babylon that would be the nation that would bring judgment upon Israel, Isaiah prophesies in, of Babylon's fall also to the Medes in chapter 13. So a 100 years before the rise of Babylon and over a 100 plus years before the fall of Babylon, God had declared specifically through the prophet Isaiah exactly what was going to take place. And mind you, that when Isaiah is prophesying and declaring these things, the Assyrians are the major world power at that time. They were the major world power. They were the dominant force. They were the ones who captured the northern tribe. So, of course, Judah, the southern tribe, would have feared the Assyrians, but it was the Babylonians that would be used as the instrument and tool to bring judgment upon Judah. Isaiah died in about 681 B.C. So between 700 B.C. and 681 B.C., the book of Isaiah was written and recorded. In 586, you had the final fall of Judah. So everything that uh, Isaiah had prophesied, finally took place in 586 B.C. Then, of course, you have the other prophet, Jeremiah, who is prophesying. Jeremiah is a contemporary of Daniel. Jeremiah is one who's not writing 100 years before the events. Jeremiah is writing during the last five kings of Judah's history. He was the prophet right up to the end of Judah's history, Jewish, Judah's time their final kings. He saw the things that Isaiah had prophesied and he was seeing them come to full fruition and he's writing telling Israel it's happening. He was writing as again as a contemporary of Daniel's and he was writing during the first deportation has taken place. Notice, for example, if you want to turn over to Jeremiah chapter 27, notice, Couple of details here in Jeremiah twenty-seven. This is probably written between six hundred five and five ninety-seven. This time, Daniel is writing here, and he is, or, or Jeremiah is writing here, Jeremiah chapter twenty-seven. And notice, uh, particularly verses four through seven, it says, "Command them." this is the Lord speaking through Jeremiah. It says, Command them to go to their masters, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Now notice verse 6. Now, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. God had declared through Jeremiah exactly what was going to happen, that Nebuchadnezzar was going to rise up, he was going to have authority, and this authority again was going to last through Nebuchadnezzar, his sons, and his grandsons. It's going to persist. Well, this didn't sit too well in Israel. Come to chapter 28, and Hananiah, the false prophet, is coming along saying, The yoke of Nebuchadnezzar is broken. In two years or less, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be thwarted and all of those who were taken away in the exile are going to return back and we're going to be delivered from the yoke of Babylon. All of chapter 28 of Jeremiah's description of that. Hananiah makes this, this prophecy. In fact, he makes this prophecy in the fifth month in the reign of Zedekiah, the king of Judah. And you come down to verse nine or actually later than that it's in verse 17 by that time Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month he he lied he introduced a lie that the people believed and it cost him his own life this ultimately caused this very lie is what Israel wanted to believe that Israel would be delivered from the Babylonian captivity rather quickly, even though God had prophesied otherwise, and it's that rebellion that led to the second coming, and second judgment, to second captivity in five ninety seven to the Babylon's Babylonians. One more prophet writing during this time is that of Ezekiel. You can turn back to Daniel. Ezekiel writes during that time, Ezekiel writes, while in the middle of captivity, he was likely taken in the final deportation, the final capturing of Judah, in that final deportation he was taken back, or he could have been taken in in 597, But he begins writing in 593, and he writes until 571. And as he's writing, he's writing anticipating the future hope of Israel. Israel is going to have a kingdom that's going to come, it's going to be set up. So he writes with anticipation and hope of what is to come. These are the prophets who are writing during this time. And it's Daniel, again, who is the one who is writing to the nation of israel the to judah while in captivity that's israel's history from the prophets standpoint let's look at also the gentile historical setting again back at daniel 1 and verse 2 daniel 1 and 2 daniel gives us the historical setting here he says that this is in the year of the reign of jehoiakim King of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. The final kings, the final Jewish kings that reigned during this time. The last righteous king of Judah was that of Josiah. He ruled from 641 B.C. to 609. You then had Jehoiakim, who ruled from 609 to 598. And then Zedekiah, who ruled from 597 to 586. Josiah was a ruler in the divided kingdom. Israel had divided after Solomon's son Rehoboam had increased the tax burden on the nations and the northern tribes separated from the ruling tribe, leaving Judah, the southern kingdom, to itself. They abandoned David's throne and they set up their own kingdom and their own rule. All of that is described in 1 Kings chapter 12. The fall of the northern tribes is described in second Kings seventeen. Josiah is the last righteous ruler in Judah. And for the longest time again, during Josiah's reign, Assyria kept threatening Judah that they were going to take over, that they were going to capture Judah and they were going to rule it. Again, Syrians were the dominant world power during that time and as the superpower they were regularly threatening judah you can go back and you read second kings 18 and second kings 18 you can see the threat of the assyrians on judah on king hezekiah in fact Sennacherib, the king of assyria came and he sought to seize judah and in 2 Kings eighteen thirteen, it describes those events where the king had sent in his delegation and threatened uh, Hezekiah, saying, "Ultimately, my my army is here, my power is here. Give you know you worship me, follow me. Give your monies to me and to my gods, and we will protect you." And it is again during this time that Hezekiah sought the lord's help and the lord protected israel's protected judah for a while longer all that led until about 609 and 609 came to the end of josiah's reign that is because by the time 612 to 609 from the 612 there was a major battle that broke out between the assyrians and the babylonians And Egypt had jumped into the mix during that time, and Egypt took up a a treaty with Assyria. They were going to be a support to the Assyrians. The Babylonians were raising in power. The Babylonians were conquering the Assyrians. And so during this time, the Egyptians came along to help the Assyrians. And while the Assyrians were, were battling the Babylonians, Up came the the Egyptians to come and protect. In 612, the capital city of Assyria at the time was Nineveh. The capital city of Assyria fell to Nabopolassar with the help of the Medes. The Assyrians were significantly weakened. They fled and Babylon chased them. And in 609... Pharaoh Necro, the second of Egypt, sought to help defend the Assyrians from the Babylonians. And traveling up to, find the Egypt, uh, up to find the Assyrians to help them, he had to travel to Haran. And to get to Haran, he had to pass Judah. And while passing Judah, out came Josiah, attempting to stop the whole thing. And he was killed by the Egyptian army. That again is described in 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 28 through thirty. Pharaoh Necho on again saw Josiah and killed him in Megiddo. So here Josiah dies, Jehoiakim takes over. The Egyptian army heads up to Assyria to face them and battle them and or or the Egyptian army joins the Assyrians to battle the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, the great army general, conquers the Assyrians. He conquers them in Carchemish. And he won the battle, sends the Egyptians fleeing home. And as Babylon chases the Egyptians down to back to Egypt, Babylon comes across. Judah. And Judah gets in the way. Judah resists. Babylon takes them captive and that's where you have the first captivity, 605. That's where we find ourselves here in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. This is the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. The new dominant world power is Babylon. They are the ones who have taken over. They are the ones who have pushed out and conquered the Assyrians. The war that began by Nebuchadnezzar is now continued and carried out by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's army is gaining in strength. The Egyptians are fleeing. And Nebuchadnezzar is becoming the dominant figure. He stayed there for a few months conquered judah would have probably stayed longer but news came that his dad nebuchadnezzar died so what does nebuchadnezzar do verse 2 tells us that he grabbed some of the vessels of the house of the god and he brought them along with some treasures he brought them back into the house of his god Nebuchadnezzar took some treasures with him and he took some people with them, some choice servants, as we're going to see when we come back next time. We'll see the individuals that, that Nebuchadnezzar took with him. Point being, in all of this is that here is now the rise of Babylon. They're the ones who are taking over. Jehoiakim is going to reign for a few more years, as I said, until about 597, 598 Israel is going to rebel at that time. They're going to resist Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to oppose his army. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to return and bring judgment upon them again and bring them back into line again. One more time they will rebel and in 586 it will be their final rebellion and they will be utterly destroyed at that point. So this is... Again, the writing in which Daniel is taken away in this very first captivity. Think about this in this. Daniel is taken away in this first captivity and he is given the royal treatment. Nebuchadnezzar is not the king yet. He is the commander of the army, the Babylonian army. He leaves this time. He heads back to Babylon where he is announced as king and made king in his dad's place. Daniel is in that group that heads back. In 597, when the second you know, deportation takes place, Daniel has been in Babylon for eight years. And by the final destruction in 586, Daniel had been in his place and well-established for 19 years in Babylon. So through all that judgment that was coming upon Judah through the hands of the Babylonians, Daniel is being raised up, put into that particular spot for the very purpose of ministering God's sovereign will in that situation. God was preparing his people he was ministering to them he was working through the historical events he was even working through the rise of nations and the fall of nations he was even working through the rising up of the of babylonians even when nations were teaming together god was working through all of that to carry out his purposes the syrians and the egyptians together could not thwart exactly what god had declared what the babylonians were given by god They were going to rule over all the lands. They were going to rule over all the beasts. They were given all authority during that time. And in the historical events, demonstrated that even the will of other nations couldn't thwart the plans of God. And along the way, Daniel is brought along by God to carry out his purposes. God's purposes. God was fulfilling through the nations of the rise of Nebuchadnezzar, he was fulfilling his prophecy through the prophet Isaiah. By the keeping of Daniel, he was fulfilling his prophecies. And God, again, was demonstrating that he had the right to rule, that he was sovereign over the details, that he was able to subdue nations. Even the powerful Assyrians were under the sovereign rule of God. This Gentile nation, again, the Babylonians, was in the sovereign hand of God accomplishing what he wanted. The rebellion of Judah, even Judah's own personal rebellion against what God had prophesied, was the very tool used as they provoked God in their rebellion. They provoked Babylon. It was very used to their own destruction. If they had simply humbled themselves and saw the, the hand of God that raised up Babylon... And didn't oppose that. They could have been preserved, but yet they continued to rebel against their God. And by that, that was the very instrument that God used to bring judgment upon them. All that leads us to some, the final look here, which is this, the purpose and the outline of the book of Daniel. What is the purpose and the outline? Well, the purpose is to demonstrate God's sovereignty over the Gentile and Jewish nations. That's what we're going to see through this book. God raises up nations. The rise of Babylon. The rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. The rise of Greece. The rise of Rome. At the same time, there's the destruction of nations. So you have the destruction of Babylon, the destruction of the Medo-Persian Empire, the destruction of Greece, the, the even eventually the fall of Rome. God's sovereignly directing in the Gentile nations. God is also sovereignly directing over the Jewish nation. He is going to continue to punish the Jewish nation for their rebellion. Continue to punish them as He had promised through the prophet Jeremiah. He also promised that there would be a deliverance. There would be a kingdom, an eternal kingdom set up. From their punishment, it's going to cause them to turn back to God. And when they turn back to God, they will be restored and the kingdom will be established. And so there is, again, the sovereign rule. That's the purpose. What's the outline? Well, we could do a literary outline. You can do the literary outline of the historical events and the prophetic events. We can do chapters 1 through 6, the history, and 7 through 12, prophecy. Prophecy. But I think this book is a little more complex than that. We'll use a textual outline. The textual outline is this. You have chapter 1, a historical context of Daniel. That's chapter 1, verse 1 through 21. Daniel sets up the historical context. And again, this is written in Hebrew. Then from chapter 2, 1 through seven twenty-eight, you have God's sovereignty over the Gentile nations. It's written in Aramaic. It's written as a judgment to the Gentile nations, is a written of description of God's work among the Gentiles. He is sovereign in that. And then in chapter, or the third point of our outline is God's sovereign, sovereignty over the Jewish nation to rescue and deliver his people. 8 1 through 1213. The key point, the key transition to this whole book is chapter 7. Because in chapter 7 is the transition where he begins to speak to write prophecies of events to come, but it is written in Aramaic. So he's still writing to Gentile nations, but is the clear transition point to this whole book. This is going to be, again, a great study for us because what we're going to see is exactly how God fulfilled his promises to Daniel, to the nation of Israel, to the Gentile nations And the natural expectation on our hearts and minds then would be that we would expect God to continue to do that exact same thing. He's going to fulfill his prophecies literally. He's going to do exactly what he said he would do, accomplishing his great purposes. For us, we ought to leave recognizing this. Yeah, there might be evil rulers that rise up, and there might be Difficulties and within human history, events move and ebb and flow. But no matter what we see around us, we know the one who is in control of every detail, even amidst warring nations. God can raise up a Babylon and use a Babylon to bring judgment. He can, even within that time, when he brings a nation to bring judgment, he can also preserve and protect his people. And even within the midst of these various nations that arise, whether it is Babylon or the Medo-Persians or Greece or Rome, in the midst of all of it, it is an instrument in the hands of God. God is accomplishing his purposes. And even when he raises up wicked rulers, whether it be Nebuchadnezzar or others, whether it is Antiochus Epiphanes or others who would bring great blasphemies against God, as we will see, God is still in control. is still directing, still fulfilling his good purposes. In the midst of all of that, it is Daniel, he keeps drawing our attention back to remind us of the sovereign hand of God through all the details. Human history is moving, but God is directing it all. The final acts and rebellion of man will be brought to an end, and God's righteous kingdom will be established, and his rule will be forever. Well, that's the introduction to this marvelous book. Next week, we come back and we get to actually jump into our text here, start to see this man, Daniel. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these rich truths and even just the the marvelous history attested to. We can just go back even into secular writings and we can see these These accounts recorded for us from various historians. And we can see the significance of all of these events and recognize your good hand directing in all of it. That you would rise up a one individual, a key man, Daniel, and use Daniel to uh, preserve your people and protect your purposes and plans. brings comfort to our hearts. For you will never leave us nor forsake us. You'll direct us through each circumstance and situation of life. And we certainly desire to go back to Your Word, to understand Your purposes and ways so that we are not resisting Your work. For even it would be natural within our own hearts to resist Your work and purposes naively, all because we are more consumed with our interests rather than Your interests. So as we come to Daniel, may we learn from this model Example, we have the kind of faith and integrity that endures through the ups and downs and trials of life, the open hostility or in time of prosperity, whatever season there is a faithfulness. Trusting in Your work as You direct in all things, but ultimately anticipating the completion of all this, the fulfillment and the establishment of Your kingdom. So comfort us from Your Scripture. Direct us. Encourage our hearts to form convictions that would last and use again this timeless truth to continue to minister to your people. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.